Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. I don't know why these people who keep track of these databases don't separate all this stuff out and like salt it up and all this other stuff that you're supposed to do with, you know, PII. And then whenever they get hacked and you see this stuff, it's pretty disheartening and sad that they just treat this data so cavalierly to where someone can just come in and hack and get the whole data set with your home address and like everything. Like it's awful if that's true. The whole model is the problem. You know, it's like you can complain about an individual entity's security, which you should, but at the same time, that's not really the big problem is the way we handle these huge honeypots of data. That's why we need to move to this um, distributed ID. Um, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the decentralized data model where we own our own data. Separation of state from ID. That's coming next. Well, it's all coming simultaneously. Like, I feel like this next wave of innovations being built on top of Lightning, et cetera, is going to really, hopefully, change how all this stuff works. Well, when you get the separation of money from state, then the state won't have the ability to enforce the regulations that it tries to enforce because they just won't have the, um, the capital to do so. Currently, they have unlimited capital to do so, to do whatever they, they damn well please. So I think that separating uh, money from state is critical to being able to um, separate some of the other uh, other things that we want to separate from state. True. Also critical to protecting freedom because <clears throat> the more these things kind of gain momentum, the more hubris. I mean, look at look at what's happening with politicians and legislature le- legislators now. It could be argued that the corruption is just right out in the open, and they don't even care. You know what I mean? That's how much hubris and how much power they believe they have, how untouchable they think they are. Because a lot of these people, you know, they don't get charged, they don't get indicted, they don't get prosecuted, they don't get arrested, they don't get put in prison. For what they've done so this what is the message there the message is oh well game on let's go who can be the biggest crook at this point and um it's very sad to see and some of you might go oh alex you're just cynical you're just being you know doom and gloomy am i really i don't know i i feel like they they feel like they can get away with anything at this point and Time to the throw more dark tetrad into your name alex no uh, know about that uh yeah like 
it, it's not good to keep feeding them. I think, you know, at this point where, where they believe they can get away with anything. I mean, it's just, it's not a good thing. So Bitcoin must win. That's a weird way to start a show. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think Bitcoin Twitter is the only place that is, um, that is an echo drum, right? I mean, or an echo chamber. I mean, you know, when when politicians, when legislators, when administrators begin to believe their own rhetoric, they sit around tables. They, I, I think many of these people think that they are doing the right thing. They think they are doing what's best. But it's because they're, they are also in an echo chamber. And, um, you know, they, they've begun to believe their own rhetoric. And it's, it's a tough place to be. I mean, there are a lot of, there are, I mean, let's step back just a little bit. There's a lot of things that these people do that are very, they're very difficult jobs. I mean, they, they, they're in difficult positions. They're, they're stuck. It, it, the old adage is the only legislation that's any good is the legislation that everybody hates because so many compromises were made. And it's the same with all kinds of processes and things that people do in corporate structures um, and in government uh, agencies. And unfortunately, I really think, and this is the worst part, is these people actually believe what they're doing is the right thing. That thing about the compromises thing, I think that's a, I feel like that's a little bit of a cop-out. Because if you look at, part of the problem with the way legislature is written nowadays is they do these big omnibus bills. I'm talking about the United States of America right now. Where, you know, they throw 3,000 pages of legislation together and everybody's pet project is in there. And everybody must compromise a little bit. How about, fuck that. How about you make it so that you can have a, a bill that's 10 pages with 10-point um, font max and nothing more than that. And you have to base it on it, – it, it's it's settling one issue, not like everybody's pet project of like, I want my cousin's llama farm to be funded by the taxpayers. <laughs> so un unfortunately, I mean, that, that would work, I'm sure, with many, many different pieces of legislation. But unfortunately, you're going to find a piece of legislation that that just doesn't work for, for whatever reason. And then, you know, that rule is going to get – that it's going to get bent and it's going to get bent again and again. And that's probably where we are now. I don't know. I, I'm a big believer in de-legislation. Or, like just, just, you know, I, I think, you know, this thing that Trump did that everybody hated, if you want to create a new regulation, you have to remove two. I like that. Like, let's just go down to the studs. Because everything that we've got right now is a goddamn mess. Martin, everyone, I was going to say, you know, like, so I think what Peter's saying is it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, you can try to make these new rules, um, but they're just going to keep on getting bent over and over again because you're not actually fixing the core problem. And so instead of trying to, you know, reframe everything with a new set of rules, which are going to get bent anyways... Um, how about we just fix the money so that <laughs> when you want to, you know, fund some new thing, you actually have to use hard money that can't be manipulated. And so you're going to have to really, you know, convince a lot of people that it's the right thing to do from the very get go. Yeah. 
That's, uh, I mean, that's the way the United States was actually formed in the early days. That's how taxation actually worked. There was no such thing as um, income tax, right? That was created in 1913 at the same time that the Federal Reserve System was created. I don't think that's a coincidence, by the way. Imagine that, huh? So that didn't exist in the beginning. In the very beginning, it was, okay, well, if the government wants to do this thing, it has to literally ask permission of the people and ask for basically donations. And if they don't get the money, they can't do it. I kind of like that system. So, Alex, I, I have a question to ask, and this is a serious question because I don't know the answer. Maybe somebody on the stage does. Do we know prior to 1913, prior to the prior to the Fed, prior to you know when when the United States was on closer to a sound money kind of um, uh, platform uh, or system? Do we know what the problems were with that particular? I mean, you, you see what I'm trying to get at? I mean, obviously, there's we see the problems of the fiat system currently. We talk about them every day. Um, we see the solution as sound money. But since there was a sound money experiment at one point, um, what were the problems that people encountered? I would, I would disagree with that. I don't think there's ever been a sound money system. Like, And this goes directly against my gold bug roots in learning about money in that all the gold bugs are like, this is sound money. Well, it's not if a human being with a stroke of the pen can make it not sound money. That's not sound money. That's subject to the whims of a man, mankind. So we've never really had sound money. We've had forms of money that were closer to, you know, uh, lower stock to flow ratios. Sure, that existed. And at those times, there are a lot of economists that argued or people that argue that those were more prosperous situations. And I can see how that would be true. But monetary bliss discipline has only temporarily been enforced on mankind from time to time. We've never really seen a system like Bitcoin. Aside where, from 100% self-custody in the Bitcoin hybridized world, what stops entities from doing the same thing and rehypothecating by the stroke of the pen? Wait, I'm not understanding what you're asking. What's well? You you said your statement was well. Gold people were able to, with the stroke of the pen, they were able to um, uh, rehypothecate gold. They were able to make paper. No, gold. it wasn't what? a matter of rehypothecation. It was a matter of removing gold as the gold standard. The whole point of the gold standard was is it was supposed to enforce monetary discipline on legislators, on a nation. Like you can't. Like if you notice, uh, countries that went off the gold standard in almost every case, they did it because they wanted to print more. You know, when you have a uh, when you have a law that basically says you cannot have more than X amount of um, money created that isn't gold or that isn't backed by a certain amount of gold, that was supposed to act as a restraint on unlimited printing. And in and in history, most countries that wanted to go to war needed to finance those wars, so they needed more debt or they needed to print more money. So that's when they would want to go off of gold. And what okay, I was so referring were, to was 1971, okay. when Nixon closed the gold window with the stroke of a pen, an executive order. He basically announced to the world, we're closing the gold window. You can no longer redeem the United States dollar for gold. That was one dude who made that decision. Gold is subject to the whims of mankind, period. This is not conjecture. That just That's happened in history. Thank you for clarifying that. 
I, I think you know one of the key differences <clears throat> when we're talking about Bitcoin versus gold, and this was highlighted by their GG. Um, actually, no, who was it before that? That's a guy named Nicholas Dorier. I don't know who this person is, but anyways, their GG quote, you know, quote retweeted him yesterday. Um, uh, real Bitcoin is more portable than paper Bitcoin. Now, that's not the case for gold. I mean, paper gold is more portable than gold, than the underlying gold, which is why paper gold actually makes sense mm. when you're using gold. But for Most Bitcoin, paper gold is electronic, though, nowadays. That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying, Alex. I'm saying paper gold is more portable than real gold. That's why it took off, and that's why it persisted. For, you know, over, yeah, over I mean, it could be argued that's why, that's why money, paper money, was yeah. If you look at the, you know, this thing is interesting. There's an interesting pattern where if you look at the history of money all throughout time, right? The the more portable, the faster you can move, the more value you could move. Humans just continued to adopt that pattern. I don't think we've ever gone backwards. You know, it's always been more portable, more value, faster, over greater distance. Right, and and so what I'm saying though is that. The reason why we believe, you know, us Bitcoiners believe that Bitcoin will be different is because real Bitcoin is more portable than paper Bitcoin. Meaning, you know, like if I want to, you know, transfer Bitcoin from me to you, Alex, um, I can do that easier with real Bitcoin than if I have Coinbase Bitcoin and, and you have Swan. Like I can't transfer my Coinbase paper Bitcoin to your Swan account. You know what I'm saying? Like paper to paper yes, doesn't can. work. Actually, you can. But why, but why do you to, think you can't? Because you can't. It has to go. It has to turn into real Bitcoin first. Oh, you're it, talking about if it's been rehypothecated. No, I'm just he's saying, saying I'm just he's saying, saying that it's more difficult. It's there's more friction, is what he's saying. There's less if, friction mm. as a as a peer to peer with Bitcoin than there is having it on an exchange or somewhere not, else. Whereas with gold, it's just the opposite. Not only is there more friction, it's impossible. For me to transfer my my Coinbase IOU certificate of Bitcoin to you, Alex, on your Swan account, unless I first convert it to real Bitcoin and transfer it over the Bitcoin network, which is what like are you that's talking whole, about about the IOU. It, your balance on Coinbase is, is a Bitcoin IOU. It's yeah, not that's real what Bitcoin. That, yeah. Oh, so I see what you, you're saying. So you in in practice, so what you're it, what you're saying is in practice. If you're on Coinbase, logged into Coinbase, and you stick in a Swan Bitcoin deposit address and initiate a transfer, they have to convert it from a promise into real Bitcoin. Yes. Is what you're saying? One hundred percent, and that is the reason why this will not persist with Bitcoin. You need the underlying real Bitcoin to actually use Bitcoin. You can't be using these rehypothecated Bitcoins forever. Like this is not—it makes no sense. Like Otherwise, the yeah. is more efficient. I'm glad you brought that up because there's something I want to talk about <laughs> um, that that is tied into this. Okay, really quick before we go there. Uh, good morning and welcome. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. This is episode 228. We're getting near the end of the year. Um, we're almost in the end of November. A couple days left in November. One more month left to go in the year 2022. And you have 34 days left to do tax loss harvesting in 2022 for this tax year if you want to do it. Uh, let's go with Tomer, and then there's something I want to talk about in regards to this rehypothecation thing. Go ahead, Tomer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to maybe add on to what uh, Peter was saying, which is uh, 
real Bitcoin is is faster than paper Bitcoin, particularly with the presence of the Lightning Network, right? When you don't have to wait 10 to 15 minutes and you don't have to pay any significant fee, then we're really getting to the fastest, um, most liquid, least friction transfer of wealth that's ever existed in the world because money literally moves at light speed with with settlement and low fees across any two parties in the world with no middlemen with no need for middlemen to negotiate with each other right it's the same as if, if i'm sending you money from my bank to your bank we got to wait we got to go through some ach or uh, the wire system or, or one of these other things. The same is true with these paper promises of Bitcoin, but if everyone's holding in the form of lightning, uh, we're all on the same network. So I just wanted to tell me, and even, even more than, even more than the, the, the middlemen negotiating, there's no need for the third party trust. Yeah. Just wait until we're on the same Fetty Mint, Tomer. Then I can then I can transfer mm-hmm. Bitcoin for absolutely free and with perfect privacy. I mean that's gonna be just, fucking just to, Are we gonna wait, have the real, cafe fetiment or not? Real quick, just as a We should. That's a fucking great idea. I apologize, but as of eleven minutes ago, BlockFi filed for bankruptcy. What? What? Oh, we knew that was coming. All right. So okay, this this is this goes back to what we were talking about. Right. So this is important for people who are new, who don't understand all these terms or using paper Bitcoin rehypothecation, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically when an exchange is taking your Bitcoin and selling it to somebody else. Essentially, it's or it's they're... like double it's like double counting or triple counting or 10 xing or what. It's kind of fractional reserving. It's It's like fractional reserve banking, basically, you know, and this is, by the way, the difference between bank custody under the law. In banking, if you take your money and you give it to a bank, guess what? That's no longer your property legally in the United States of America. That now belongs to the bank, literally. It's part of their balance sheet. You become what's called an unsecured creditor to an occasionally solvent financial institution, depending upon when you take the snapshot of their financials. So in custody, uh, a qualified custodian under the law is not allowed to use your assets they can't put it it's not part of their balance sheet it is supposed to be segregated from their own assets they can't lend it they can't sell it to somebody else they can't lease it out this is where all the shenanigans comes from because if everything was uh, on a one-to-one basis it would be fine but in in fractional reserve banking for example nobody wants to make a run on the bank as long as they think the bank's got your money as soon as everybody thinks the bank doesn't have your money that's what everybody goes to get the money and that's when people realize oh shit they don't have it all. That's exactly what happened with FTX, and that's what's happening in a cascade of failures throughout the industry. So, speaking of that, I'll let you guys comment in a second. I want to lead and build up some here. So, I saw this thing today. It was a tweet. I think it was by BTC Meg. Binance cuts fees by over 99% for dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin through the rest of 2022. They're trying to attract your money and your Bitcoin. Why? You got to scratch your head and ask the question, why? All right. I'm going to reveal something. I might get in trouble for this, but I think it's pertinent and important. Um, This was a DM that we received at Swan. The person shall remain nameless. We're not going to identify them, but this is going to blow your mind. All right. Quote, 
I res- refused to use Swan Private because I couldn't understand why you for buying Bitcoin when I could get it from FTX for free. Red flag. So I moved my BTC from cold storage to FTX to get the free fees. Now I have lost my net worth. $2 million, all my cash and Bitcoin, gone. Wish I had just paid the Swan private fees. There's a lesson in this. If there is no fees, you are the product. All right. I don't know who's next. Go. So I just wanted to comment real quick because we were, you know, you, you mentioned rehypothecation, but I think what's more pertinent to this, you know, this 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 case that we've seen with FTX is they didn't they weren't even rehypothecating Bitcoin. They were just using paper Bitcoin, meaning, you know, you were putting your dollars onto their platform and they would give you a Bitcoin balance. But they know they didn't have any underlying Bitcoin, so it wasn't even rehypothecation. It was they were pure, just making it up. It was purely paper. It was, yeah, just making it up. So I mean, there's no guarantee. And even even these exchanges that have you know, <laughs> fucking like what do they call it? Uh, uh, proof of reserves. Like, okay, sure. Oh, great. Okay, yeah, they have Bitcoin on their balances. But what are their um, fucking uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Come on. What are their liabilities? You know, like it's exactly. only one side of the equation. So, yeah. Maybe and that's why have. this entire concept of uh, proof of reserves is bullshit. It's, it's basically a red herring. It's designed to distract you. And I, I wanted to say, Alex, to your previous statement about, about the banking system here, 70% approximately of the world does not have – we take it for granted. They do not have access to the same system. And guess what? The rest of the world pays for us to have access to this ridiculous scheme. It's it's the 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 resource mining that goes on by banks in the rest of the world um, to benefit those of us that have access to this liquidity and credit market. It is insane, and it is not yeah. fair. It's the biggest, I, I would say, it is the big. the fiat U.S. dollar is the biggest con perpetuated on mankind in the history of mankind. That's the cult. <laughs> Some people are like, yeah, that Bitcoin thing looks like a cult. How about that U.S. dollar thing looks like a cult? Orin was well, talking fun, about- funny, funny enough on that, Alex, is I was I was orange pilling a thin Twitter over the weekend. And when his peers came in and like heard in the spaces that he was talking like he was getting his mind blown about Bitcoin, like you want to talk about cult, like the amount of like vitriol that they who, who was this Mike? Him, I, I'm not going to dox the guy, but like the the amount of vitriol that they slung at this guy because he came around to seeing the value of Bitcoin. I was just like, I was like, dude, do you see like what you're also dealing with? Like you thought the Bitcoin maxi community was like, was bad. Like this is, this is pretty awful, man. Yeah. It's fascinating. Really? Like there's this great article that I was reading a little bit this morning. Um, where is it? It's in Bitcoin magazine. It's called Why People Struggle with Bitcoin. Again, Why People Struggle with Bitcoin by Nick Baird. And he's talking about these phases that people go through, whether they're able to actually understand what Bitcoin is. 
And what happens with some people is, is that they actually, if they're from the legacy finance world and they have an incentive fiat to them, basically, they have an incentive to try and maintain that system. <laughs> Sometimes they just double down. And he quoted like this thing from Preston Pish. It's interesting, interesting to see the no coiner pivot from one. I've spent my life in finance and Bitcoin will never work. What fools Two. Bitcoin is immoral and something that will destroy society and the environment. <laughs> and then, and then Alex, as soon as you, as soon as you zoom out a little bit, I know somebody who actually, this person was just talking to me this morning. They have a business in a foreign country and they're having difficulty because uh, they can't access the banking system in their own country for whatever reason. And what they have to do is they have to convert the payments they receive for their business from MasterCard and Visa into USDT, send that to somebody who then converts that back to BTC for them. It's the only way they can do this because they don't have access to the banking system. And and when your eyes are open to when you can when you can take the blinders off and you can see what's happening in the rest of the world and how this system affects other people and other productivity in the world it is really really bad yeah i had a client the other day who this guy does real estate i've got a lot of clients who do commercial real or real estate or or you know um what do you call it multi unit like apartments or whatever and um Man, it's amazing how many of these kind of guys are coming to us nowadays. They're like, we need to pivot. We need to like switch gears. Like it's uh it's it's fascinating. I don't know even know why I got off on that tangent. It had something to do with what you were saying, Peter, but it's because they're uh, they're taking the blinders off and they're starting to see the fallacy of the system and how the system is the system of debt, which is built on promises, these promises turn out to be lies. Yeah, wicked. What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, well, and and this is only going to accelerate as you know our legacy system implodes further. Um, I was just going to say, um, I've also experienced this. You know, I have a, a good friend who used to be in in traditional finance, you know, for his job, and he could not understand Bitcoin. He thought that I was crazy. He just wouldn't even give it like the time of day to learn. And as soon as he moved on from that position and started working. I think he you know, started working in like software development or something for, for something entirely different. Um, it seemed like the, you know, the, the blinders kind of came off and he became a lot more receptive uh, to Bitcoin. I don't know if it also had, you know, kind of coincided with everything that's been happening, uh, especially with like, you know, things kind of derailing <clears throat> in legacy and like, the inflation and everything, but like for whatever reason, over the past year or two, um, I'd say over the past year, he's been a lot more receptive, and and, and it started when he left his tradfi job. It, you know what? It's interesting about the tradfi job, but here's the other part of about that is that there's this saying that um, you cannot get somebody to see or understand something. I'm paraphrasing it when their survival basically depends upon them not understanding it. Right? Their providence is directly tied into that. So this is part of the reason why savings is so important because it frees your mind. Okay. So think of it like this. For those of you who have not got there yet, if you can stack up six months to a year's worth of expenses, like just take what it costs you, your monthly expenses to live and survive, multiply it out by 12 
get a number, right? If you can stack that up in savings, it will change you in terms of how you see things and think about things. It frees you to, to not be a slave to money controlling you. And that really will open your mind up to be able to understand things you could not understand before. Bonus points if you then convert it into Bitcoin. Yes. Well, I mean, it could be, you know, that value could be stored in anything, whatever, ideally, you know, like Bitcoin. Sure. Peter. The intoxication of the fiat system is greed. The intoxication of Bitcoin is truth. And I would just rather be intoxicated by truth. Whoa. Dude. <laughs> All right. I feel like we've exhausted that topic. Unless anybody else has anything to add there. No? All right. Here's a new one. This is interesting to me. We've been talking for, well, all year about how this situation where Russia has been removed from the international monetary system has caused them to look for alternatives. And uh, slowly but surely, we've been seeing announcements where they're embracing essentially cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, for value transfer internationally, in settlement for natural resources such as energy, etc. And here's a new one. This was uh, apparently they're the TASS um, President Putin during a speech said that he believes we should be looking for a Bitcoin-based international payment system. Now, he didn't say Bitcoin, I guess. I don't have the copy of the exact speech. If anybody does, and you know what I'm talking about, please shoot it to me. But um, calling for an international payment system based on blockchain technology, according to him, the current system is controlled by a small club of states and financial groups. All true. Russia has made several pro-crypto moves following the wave of sanctions imposed on it by the West. Um, there, he says there's a need for a new and independent international settlement system amidst the sanctions and restrictions placed on his country. New system would be independent of banks and third-party interference, suggested calling. He suggested creating a system based on digital currency and blockchain technology. Gosh, if someone had just invented something like that, that would be so great. Uh, it kind of blows my mind. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether he's going down the rabbit hole and thinking about this stuff or I don't know where he's at. But well, it make, makes me kind of wonder if he isn't trying to just like softball the, the conversation in there with that kind of wordage. Um, like suggesting that we look into trying to make our own so that somebody tries and then they fail and then they realize, oh, why are we wasting all this effort when such a, a good operating system already exists in the form of Bitcoin? Like, that, that that's what it seems like to me, but maybe he really is just like following the the standardized statesman approach and thinks that they can actually make their own. Or or he's following the standardized approach to understanding Bitcoin, right? Like who, everybody everybody climbs Mount Stupid a little bit at a time, right? And then we figure it out. And he's like, okay, he made this statement at the Sparebank Sparebank Artificial Intelligence Conference. Um. He says international settlements are threatened following tense relations between Russia and the Western superpowers and that it's possible to create a new system of international payments based on currency, techn currency technologies and distributed registries, much more convenient 
but at the same time completely safe for participants and independent of banks and third-party interference. I mean, there's only one I can think of that actually meets that definition, and that's Bitcoin. So I don't know if he's thinking of maybe, you know, saying someone should create this thing or maybe it's like you said, Mike, maybe he's slowly coming to the conclusion that, wow, if we just had a form of money that nobody, no human being controlled, that would be pretty fair, wouldn't it? Feels like a solution. Can I play devil's um, advocate real fast about, about the Russia thing and Bitcoin? We have a standing tradition on this show. We don't ask if you can ask because that just wastes everybody's time. Just ask. Oh, okay. So what if Putin does understand Bitcoin and he realizes that over 35% of the hash power is in America and about 95% of that hash power can be captured by the state at any given time? What if he is waiting for more hash power within Russia before he like you know decides to go the Bitcoin route? Because if you're a state actor and you know that another country that isn't your best friend can censor transactions with force, you might want to wait until there's more hash power within your geographical borders. That's just my opinion. He, he, would, all, he would also be incentivized to wait for his friends that, down in the Middle East and in North Africa as far as like energy producers go. Yes, to, yes. To build up an, an exposure, or not an exposure, but operations that are using Bitcoin mining to help with oil and gas production. The yeah, assumption 100%. that 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 thirty five percent of the hash power is capturable in the United States, I don't know that that's correct. I mean, you I might mean, be able the to... biggest mines are you know you have like four farms here, four or five farms in America that is most of the hash power, right? No, it's not. I mean, they do have a lot of the hash power, but they don't. They don't. It's nowhere near the amount I think that you're talking about. They can most, capture most, the hash. Most of America's they, hash power, not yeah, most they, of the they networks. can capture the actual machinery, but can they capture the individuals that run the farm? No, this is no, this is what I'm getting at. Even if okay, so even if the United States government went after all known uh industrial mining facilities, right? That's that's still not gonna control the majority of the hash. I'd I'd oh, like there. to get somebody up here who knows the actual numbers, but I I, I do recall reading that um, it's 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 not anywhere near that. Even if they did, Alex, if they, they can get the machinery, they can get the facilities. But if the people don't come along with it, I, I cannot imagine that the U.S. government is going to be able to um, run a, a efficiently run a mining farm. They can't do no. fucking anything. Mm, maybe. No, no, no. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. Maybe. Maybe. It wouldn't be the politicians that are running these farms. It would just get you know. If all of a sudden the United States government sees Bitcoin mining as this weapon that um, Mr. Lowry is trying to prove that it is, then they might want to have it, that type of, that section of Bitcoin under the branch of the United States government under the threat that, you know, I don't understand why everybody gets so freaked out and hung up about this weapon argument. I mean, right. it's just... Of Mr. I mean, Hoddle, Mr. Hoddle, even if they do, do you really think that they can that they can effectively and efficiently run a Bitcoin mining operation? I don't think so. I don't think I don't, they have. I don't think that's. That. I don't know that that's the, right, that's so the point. Or, the so point I'm is, sure if, if they have if they have control of the ASICs, I think that's probably more important. 
So the, I'm not the, sure if you, if you guys realize this, but uh, Corey Fields, who is a Bitcoin core developer, is the one that's helping the United States government with CBDCs. So no, the politicians won't be able to do anything. But you have a bunch of bootlick, bootlickers that do understand how this works, including Mike Kearns, Gavin Andreessen, there's many of them that can run something like that. Um, but I just don't think another country like Russia would want to even take that risk if they know that this much hash power is resided in a country that's not their friend. I'm, listen, I could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, you could be, and I think you are. It <laughs> sounds like a lot of bro science. Uh, Blockwatch, do you have uh, something to add to this? Hey, yeah. I'd just like to chime in and say it's not that difficult to set up and run a mining operation. I think a lot of the guys in the military could figure it out in a couple of months. Um, I personally hopped into mining like two years ago and learned in a couple of months. And I have no computer science background or anything like that. So it's not such a steep task. Yeah, I agree with that. Especially if the U.S. military did it. I know the kids yeah, that are... Sure in there nowadays and they're very fucking smart and they're very, you know, they're great with technology. They're Nate. They're first of all, they're digital natives. They grew up doing this shit. They know about how, you know, to do things. I don't think there'd be a problem. Apparently this, this topic has struck a nerve because we've got Foss up here now. <laughs> Good morning, Greg. What's up? Hey guys. Uh, yeah, I, I like the conversation. I was trying to bite my tongue. Um, cause I have to jump anyway, but look, what Fascinating conversation. You guys are just talking game theory. I mean, really, what yes. it breaks right down to is game theory. Don't overthink it. You cannot possibly plan the future. This is called game theory. Absolutely, Putin knows what he's doing. Putin is not a friend of the USA, and the USA is not a friend of Russia. But game theory will come into play, not just with Russia, not just with the USA, with every single other country in the world that is trying to accomplish the same thing. So please don't overthink things and please stop trying to plan the future. It's impossible to just protect yourself with expected value analysis, probabilities over and out. Thanks. I'm not a spook. Talk to you guys later. <laughs> That's exactly what a spook would say. Go fuck yourself. Thank you. Are you gonna are you gonna are you gonna drop down a listener now or or are we gonna have to take bingo. a shot? Bingo card GFY. Bingo card. I think the behavioral science part of it or the behavioral um is it that's always been fascinating to me, like what do humans do under certain situations? And uh nations are not immune to this either. So when you're sort of backed into a corner and you've been, you know, your assets have been frozen, if you're if you're on the international monopoly board in one country, the United States of America is basically the bank and the bank says, no, you can't play anymore. What do you do? Exactly so that's kind of where right, they are. Alex. They are battling the SWIFT system, okay? The SWIFT system designed essentially in America. This is why Bitcoin and decentralization wins all paths lead to Bitcoin. You can't predict the country, but one country will do it. And then another country will look at that country and say, wow, they're being successful. This is interesting. I'm in a competitive environment. I better do the same. I uh, don't know where it happens and how it gets there. But in 20 years, we'll look back on this conversation and say, wow, that was pretty simple. Yeah, it'll be obvious in hindsight, right? But yeah, when you're, when you're kind of, when you don't see all the things that are going to get built. It's really hard. Like, you know, back in the day, the beginning of the internet, who knew? 
we would be on smartphones that have, you know, 10x or 100x the processing power of the computers that launched the space shuttle into orbit, talking on an app to each other, <laughs> all from with people or participants from all over the world. Like it's it's pretty wild. Yeah, more hey, like Greg, a million how long x. Until, uh... Sorry, sorry, we can. No, no, no. Go ahead. I just said more like a million x. I was gonna say, hey, Greg, how long till uh, Credit Suisse gets a bailout? Yeah, um, you know they raised four billion dollars. That's probably uh, you know one tenth of the amount they really need. So the credit default swaps are pointing to trouble. Um, the stock, which will trade off the CDS, is pointing to trouble. But really, we're talking about a ten billion or now fourteen billion dollar market cap or equity risk absorbing equity. Uh, uh, pool that is five to 10 times short of what is really needed. So, you know, we're again, overthinking on the other side here. Yeah, they will get a bailout. It'll be a rescue plan. The question is, can they contain it? And does it bring down or make similar things needed for the big turkey in the room, which is Deutsche Bank? So, you know, these are things that happened in 2007. And then, you know, it took for three years, it took for the uh, things to, to settle out and, uh, work themselves out through the TradFi Ponzi, but uh, it is coming. It's as simple as the, you know, as we've seen the playbook play out. I got to step down. I really do enjoy you guys. And I really under, I, I understand that some people think I'm a spook. That's all good. Uh, freedom of speech is what makes the world work. Uh, it's what makes America great. So freedom of speech and uh, God bless America. See you guys. Thanks, man. God bless Canada. I love the Canadians too. Canadians are, in my opinion, in some ways, better versions of Americans. In some ways. Can we go back? There sure are a lot of Canadian Bitcoiners. There are a lot of Canadian it's... Bitcoiners. And some of them are really freaking smart. Some of them are leaders. Why is, that, that, is. Why is that such a <laughs> low such bar a to achieve? What do you mean? What are you talking about? Being better Americans than Americans, it seems like a very low bar. Nowadays, I, it kind of is, say, isn't it? When you say better Americans than Americans, I think that there are, because we don't have the same protections or the same wealth here in Canada, um, there are many more Canadians who are sensitive to the need to uh, to advocate for and think about freedom. Right? And, and we have... So in, in that sense, I'd say there's probably way more better, air quote, better Americans in all sorts of poor countries. You just don't, they just don't speak English as well as Canadians. Um, and they don't have access to uh, to the American audience as much. But, you know, some of the best Americans are immigrants, right? They're not necessarily born because they appreciate the freedom so much because they've seen something different. And it's not that Canada's not a free country, but... Uh, I'm I'm an immigrant to Canada my, myself. So when you when you really have seen your currency completely debased, uh, collapsed, and and then you've had the opportunity to live in a country that's that's in the middle, you um, you just you you it's hard not to take note of what's what's really important. And whether it's uh, Greg or Jeff or or myself or a bunch of other Canadians like. We have we have our concerns, and you'll notice that um, at least the ones I mentioned were all kind of in our early to mid fifties. We've seen 
the Canadian dollar go from being worth a dollar thirty U.S. Uh, to being worth sixty-five cents. So we've had like a double kick of inflation um, in that period of time, and we've seen Canadians' standards of living dip below what Americans typically expect to enjoy. So there's it. It hits us in the pocketbook. But you may be talking about something else altogether too. Can I bring us back to? Uh making Bitcoin a weapon via Lowry. If, uh, if they were to designate ASIC chips as a weapon, couldn't the federal government control the manufacturing and distribution of ASIC chips and put back doors into them? Wouldn't you also being a miner be required to be licensed to man- to uh, mine Bitcoin in the United States? You know, there's a lot of speculation about what Jason is mm. or isn't going to say it at, at <laughs> this afternoon. I think I think it's interesting to give a listen and and see and see what's happening. I think we can concoct all kinds of theories about what might or might not be the case. I I and I, I don't want to I don't want to overly speculate because it's my speculation versus your speculation. So there there'll be a lot more of what he's got to say about this out in a couple of hours, but I, I do think he's done a remarkable job of creating a lot of publicity for the fact that he's coming out with something, but there's a lot of people speculating on the basis of things that he hasn't said. And, and I think that, you know, this notion that uh, ASIC miners being deemed weapons and therefore regulated in their manufacturing and, you know, just following that whole chain of thought is, is not, is not substantiated by anything that's actually been written down and communicated. Well, I just find it kind of weird because he is an active duty military operator. Is this some kind of military operation going on right now? I mean, it's kind of weird. Right. I'm, an, I'm a veteran as stop. well. So yeah, stop. Just stop. I, why would I want to stop, bro? It's freedom of speech. Remember? No, it's not because I have this button on on the, on here that allows me to boot you off the stage, which I'm doing right now. So see it, bro. Not freedom of speech. Some people, some people are like, "Damn, Alex, you're so um, you know, you're like a you're like a tyrant. You're like a mini tyrant on that stage." And it's like, look, if the only time that I shut down types of certain types of conversation or whatever is when when I feel like you're wasting everybody's fucking time, and that's I'm sorry, but that was a waste of everybody's time. Um. So yeah, I just wanted to say something real quick while we're on the topic of Jason Lowry and, and you know, maybe we won't stay on this topic much longer just because, you know, maybe it's wasting everyone's time. <laughs> but, but I don't I don't think that, you know, talking about what Jason Lowry is interested in is necessarily a waste of time. It's just some angles of speculation about it are just are just forgive forgive me for being, you know, saying it like this. They're just it's just dumb. It's like, yeah, so, what do you mean back doors in the ASICs? What the fuck is that going to do? I mean, it's just—it's really I mean, just like. <clears throat> I think that that well, could, it's a slippery know, slope. That, 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 that could be a legitimate concern, but but just on the topic of Jason Lowry, so I've you know I've met the guy in person. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have as well. I mean, my read of him is that he's he wants to do what's best for Bitcoin, and from probably a a fairly you know. Um, personal standpoint most of his net worth is in bitcoin so it would be pretty dumb of him to do things that could you know make the network 
worse. That being said, I mean, some of the things that he is doing could kind of cascade into things that could make the network worse, for example, if that did happen, not saying it will. But, um, okay, so all that being said, um, the other thing is, like, he's he's not, like, he's not, he doesn't have that much influence in the military, at least not at this point. So, like, what he's doing right now is he's at MIT thinking of ideas about Bitcoin, and, you know, no one's really listening to him yet. So to give him this, like, you know, to prop him up on this pedestal of, like, thinking that he has so much influence when he really doesn't is kind of silly. I mean, he might in the future. And, I mean, you know, maybe maybe he does have, like, a, a, a three-minute meeting set up with some of the people in the White House. But, like, even that is not crazy influential. We'll see where it leads. But at this point, he's still a, a very, very small fish in the pond. Isn't the quick answer to all of this, look what happened in China in May of 2021, and that the miners will just fucking move? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's many parts to all of this, but I, I don't worry so much about the dude's influence as I do, you know, as I'm, I'm not worried. I shouldn't say I'm worried. I'm not even worried about any of this kind of stuff this dude's brought up. Like, people are freaking out about it. I, I don't I don't see what this guy is gonna do that's gonna that's gonna really hurt Bitcoin in in the greater picture of things. You know, even like this whole concept of like, okay, so ASICs produced in the United States, now they have backdoors in them. Well, you know, the the world is not gonna operate just based upon that, right? Where did Bitmain start? It wasn't in the United States of America. You yeah, know, you don't worry about you can't say that. If you okay, worry about well, of, of, of Bitcoin miners being manufactured in, in the United States, I have um, <laughs> something you know to tell you about where they're manufactured now. If you know what I mean. I mean, like, if that's your concern, then you probably shouldn't be using fucking miners at this point in time either, because <laughs> they're manufactured in, <laughs> in places that I trust a lot less. Um, than American companies. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, if you're worried about that aspect, you should probably be worried about the phone that you're using right now. <laughs> okay, let's not go there, man. I'm not ready for this conversation. I'm only on my second cup of coffee. Those are weak numbers, man. You got to pump those numbers up. Hey, I got a manicure and a pedicure this weekend, and it was awesome. I would highly suggest it for any male that's never done it to go ahead and do it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Let's have announcements real quick, and we'll keep rolling. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you've never been here before, we do talk about Bitcoin. We do it every day, Monday through Friday, live on Twitter Spaces. Uh, we start at 7 a.m. Pacific, roll for about two hours. Great place to learn about Bitcoin, place for your morning news. We have some heated arguments on occasion, but I mean, it's all in, it's all too fine signal, basically. It, it's what we call, so it, it's, it's what I call a Socratic forum. I wrote a, a little, wrote a little article on that, which explains that in a little deeper if you want, if you're interested, shoot me a damn. Uh, it's preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Also, a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. If you want to pre-purchase tickets to Pacific Bitcoin 2023, uh, you can at Pacific 
Bitcoin2023.com. Those are fully refundable until July 1st. So if the dates don't work out for you or whatever, you can do that. Uh, let's in, keep going. In, in Bitcoin, question mark? Damn it. Apple, man. I don't know. Sooner or later, somebody's going to be like, I'm so tired of him asking that question. We're going to figure out the answer to it. You and your fruity corners. I'm not putting up the sats unless I get a confirmation I can get them back. And even then, I might not trust you. <laughs> okay. Alameda Research withdrew $204 million ahead of bankruptcy filing, according to Arkham Intelligence. So uh, in the days um, leading up to the collapse of FTX, so apparently Alameda pulled $204 million from eight ad at different addresses of FTX in a variety of crypto assets, majority of, majority of which were stable coins. Like, holy cow, man. That's like, you know, it makes me think of it makes me think of like if you're on the Titanic and you know, like you're the engineers or you're the captain or whatever, you've come to the conclusion this thing is sinking. <laughs> We're gonna cordon off all of these light boats on this side of the ship for us. Like everybody else is just like, good luck. Anybody have any comments? Or is everybody just tired of talking about FTX by now? Yeah, at least, <laughs> at, least, at least with the lifeboat scenario, there's little chance that anybody's going to be able to figure out that's what you did. It is the same story repeated over and over, which is take take possession of your Bitcoin. Don't try to play funny games with it wait for it to appreciate you know like blockfi going bankrupt today declaring bankruptcy it the writing was really on the wall pretty early on and the expectation that you can get yield on bitcoin or or yield really even on any cryptocurrency that will be worth more bitcoin at some point in the future is fundamentally mistaken and there's a lot of things there's a lot of ways you can deduce that but just the expectation that you're going to give somebody bitcoin and they're going to somehow be able to give you back more bitcoin magically somehow is is naive at best and and this is where everybody ended up uh finding out that you don't get the money back i i mean i i remember back to when when everyone was advertising BlockFi. i guess this is early 2021 because you know, they were paying 8% or something on Bitcoin. And I remember I sent I sent some coin into it to see what it was like. And I just watched on the blockchain what they did. And it was like my, the coin that I went got aggregated into some address. And then that got split into a bunch of addresses and that went. And within like 30 minutes, this thing had been split and sent 16 different ways. And I was trying to listen to a podcast with their CEO saying what he was doing with the money and how they were earning it. And it just never it never really made sense. He talked about certainty and this and that and the other, but I never understood where is someone able to borrow one Bitcoin and then pay 1.08 Bitcoin later on, other than if they're shorting it and the price goes down, then they can buy it back. But then you finance someone shorting a Bitcoin 
And if they don't, and if they short it and the price goes up, then they won't be able to repay you. So it just all seemed like all all risk, no return. And and that's the way that these things have played out in the in the long term. So again, just for everyone listening, just hold your Bitcoin. It's free to hold and and it'll go up in value over time rather than give it to someone who's going to sell it short in the market and drive down its value and and then give it back to you when it's worth less or will not give it back to you if it goes up. Right? You're you're you lose in this proposition, not gain. Holding and storing Bitcoin is also a use, by the way, for those of uh, the detractors that try to claim that it's an asset that has no like capability of providing value or anything. It's a little ridiculous. Yeah, it's an awesome use case. Yeah, if if the, for the people that don't think uh, Bitcoin has value, you can send me as many Bitcoin as you want. <clears throat> yeah, no, they don't so. have any. They don't have any to send to you, Peter. <laughs> Well, then get some since it's worthless and then send it to me. Um, <laughs> so uh, I just thought of a really cool idea, Ant. Um, what if you had like a live tracker that somehow had a really cool UI where it would like, I mean, in Tomer's case there, where he was tracking, you know, the, the on-chain activity of this one transaction kind of over time. And it quickly cascaded into dozens if not hundreds of of transactions you know moving forward what if you had that all kind of in an animated live uh web browser format where it kind of like it just tracks it and it shows you as it as it branches out into everything else that'd be kind of cool right it'd be an awesome animation or just an i mean an awesome web app um not if only we knew know, a wink, pixelated wink. fruit that likes to produce animated graphics. I, I, like I, that. I, okay, I go wait a second here. I'm saying, I say, okay, I make animations. I'll make web apps. If only we knew, uh, you know, laser-eyed uh, cyber uh, person who made web apps. Yeah, I like it. Let's talk about it. We got to talk about. We got to bring in TC too. We'll, we'll put something together. Dude, TC's like I was talking with him this weekend. TC's like tweaks he's made to that uh the calendar like <laughs> that's really well done job well done tc has has anybody seen the if you haven't seen tc's uh time calendar uh dot com uh web Excuse app me? yeah if you haven't seen that all you need to do <laughs> wait is what did you say at, peter hold on all you need to do is well look don't at tell the, them the wrong domain <laughs> what did you say peter timechaincalendar.com isn't it yeah, it's not timecalendar.com. Oh, okay. Well, that was my – all right. Well, I'm a little dyslexic. I apologize for that. But anyways, there's a there's an Amazon ad that's on Twitter that's actually all over that has a watch. And the face of the watch, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, TC has has released the Apple Watch app because it Stop looks saying so- fake news. God damn it, TC. Quit interrupting. God damn it, Peter. I'm trying up. to promote your damn – Alex, do something. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm I'm multitasking. I was actually oh, no, in DMs. Get your dog on a leash, Alex. I am so glad that I've met you in person, <laughs> TC, because now I can put a a face and a and a stature to the voice, and I'm not so intimidated. Wow. Yo, wicked ant uh, meeting later today about uh, tan- transaction tracker. Let's go. 
you know, uh, when I when first I first started talking to TC on spaces, like some of the stuff he said, I was like, grr, grr, that, that guy, like he makes me grr. But then I met him in person. He's a, he's a huge teddy bear, and now I love TC. You guys are destroying his online brand. Stop. Just meet him in person. Like, what do you, you mean? He's, do, an, he's an Anunnaki he, with a with a with a Santa Claus hat on. What? How? He's destroying it himself. <laughs> I mean, it's. Yeah, I don't mean this in a in a non appropriate right way, but when you meet him, it's like he, he just like elicits this response where you want to hug him. He's like a very huggable dude. Then he I mean stiff arms you. He's like, "Don't touch me." I mean that in a very appropriate, manly kind of way. I, I loved it when I met him because I was talking to him for a minute, and he really had no idea who this idiot was. And then he then he looked at me, and I said, "It's Peter," and he went. Peter, Peter, and his eyes got really big. It was awesome. And yes, then we hugged. Uh, Brett Morris, Morrison, jump in here, man. Hey, Alex. Up for three minutes. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, just wanted to chime in on the uh, the yield, the yield idea, and and how tempting that is for. Uh, people that aren't maximalists or don't really understand what they're doing. And they, you know, they see all the ads on TV and they go to the websites and they're super slick and it's very tempting, I think for them. And so one thing I've been thinking about is regulation and, you know, as a libertarian, you know, I'm against any regulation, really just let people, let the markets decide, let people make their mistakes, let people understand what trust is and what, what their level of risk is. And, I don't think, I just don't think people are ready for that. Like I would love a world where there isn't regulation and you just, you know, let the buyer beware. Um, but I guess, I guess that could be a hellscape as well where there's just constant fraud everywhere. So I, I don't know. It's like, it's a, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting problem that Americans are going to have to reckon with and legislation is going to have to, legislators are going to have to reckon with where uh, regulating these, centralized, you know, Bitcoin slash crypto services is going to be super challenging. And I don't, I think they're just going to clamp down first and release later. So I can see all these yield products maybe getting shut down in the near future and, um, and then, you know, them turning it off and that can well, be good securities. for us. Their security, the, right? Well, yeah, and sure. Once that happens, that's going to change everything. So is that what we're waiting for here is, is Gensler or, or remember to say, okay, everything's a security except for Bitcoin. Um, He's already said it, basically. And and depending, you know, what happens with this library case, I think they're going to establish legal precedent. Um, what what's and, what's next in the queue for that? Is there something scheduled on the court dockets to uh, beyond the library case? Is there something that's been appealed? Is it going to the Supreme Court? Know. Like, hmm, yeah, does anyone know. know? Yeah, somebody knows. Maybe not here on this show right now. Uh, you know, one thing I'm I'm torn when it comes to the whole regulated or don't regulated thing. Like, I I feel like regulations the whole it makes it makes government the daddy, and the problem with that is it makes human beings weaker. It makes us unable to to be self resilient. Like we, I, I contend that humans for a large part have lost this discernment mechanism, this muscle of discernment 
that doesn't get used and because it's underused, it's atrophied and, and people don't have it. So people can't spot a con anymore. They can't spot what's wrong anymore because the government's just there to protect them from everything. Alex, and I Alex, think that I that's very dangerous in, in some ways. I, I have to interject because that's only from our perspective outside of the United States, outside of, of, of the first world, all of these people know a scam immediately. Talk to anybody in a third world nation and they've yeah, been scammed exactly. so many damn times. And this is why Bitcoin is going to be the biggest transfer of wealth the world has ever seen. Because mm -hmm. as Brett was saying, it seems like it's almost not fair to go to um, unregulated space in the United States or, or in, the, in the first world. Because this virus, this fiat virus has infected everybody. And nobody can tell the difference. They can't discern exactly as you're saying. And so the first movers with Bitcoin, who are the majority are outside of the first world, are going to benefit because and that's one of the reasons that they're going to be first movers is because they already have that ability to discern those things. Hey, Peter, that so, you know, I don't want to detract from the conversation too much. That that was a perfect segue into what I just wanted to mention real quick. Um so, you know, the the brother or the, the guy and his brothers who made my pixel apple <laughs> for me, um, this Venezuelan family, uh, uh, they just announced that they uh, successfully raised enough money with Bitcoin to um, purchase the uh, goats and sheep that they wanted to purchase for their family farm. And the tweet in it, you know, the tweet where they say this, they say at, at the bottom, support from all over the world without intermediaries so i mean like this this is exactly what you're talking about you know folks who are unbanked and who have you know these problems getting money and and taking money into self-custody and just you know living their lives are getting bitcoin faster than the rest of us and they're using bitcoin in real meaningful ways in their lives um you know this guy and his brothers made some kind of interesting kooky art <laughs> digital art which instead of you know going down the shitcoin route and trying to make nfts and do all that bullshit they just did it out of the goodness of their heart for bitcoiners and you know if if we if we if we were amused asked us to donate over lightning and many of us did and now they have a family farm in venezuela so just wanted to put that out there i put it up in the nest if you're interested in seeing this guy's story that's pretty cool and, and this is why stack chain is important and, and, and I believe is important. You know, we just we, the stack chain has just crossed the three million dollar cut bucks converted um, uh, barrier. And it, it's pretty amazing that that a group of 500 people have been able to do this. But these people that are involved with stack chain get it. And almost all of these people are from first world nations. So there's there is a contingent that gets it. And that contingent is also in this room. And um, you know what? Uh, for those that uh, for those that don't get it, have fun staying poor. You get Bitcoin at the price you deserve. I mean, you know, I, I, I hate to be mean, but that's just the fucking reality. All right. Um, second hour of the show. And today's featured guest is Brett Morrison. So Brett's working on this thing called True Vote, 
uh, truevote.org or truevote.org. And um, let's dig into this. I, you know, when I first heard about this, I thought, you know, that that would be a great way to do it. But then there's all the technical difficulties involved in, in actually making something like that workable. So what I would like to do is dig in a little bit with you, Brett. Um, sort of the tagline is simplifying the complicated computer. I'm sorry, Brett Morrison. Uh, man, where, is, where am I going with all this? Brett Morrison, simplifying the complicated computer scientist and tech, tech entrepreneur, freedom maximalist, Bitcoin maximalist. True vote is to ensure a true democracy. What's needed is a fully digital tamper-proof verifiable system. True vote is designed to fill that need. There's also a white paper uh, at truevote.org slash truevote.pdf. Let's dig in. If uh, you don't mind, Brett, I'd like to just open this up because there's a lot of people who understand sort of the, the intricacies of the technical side of Bitcoin way better than me. So I want to uh, let everybody ask you questions and kind of make it an open forum. If you want, Brett, why don't you give us a couple of minutes, like maybe a five-minute summary of your idea here, how it works, um, and then maybe we can dig in with some questions. Great. Sounds good. I'll try and, I'll try and keep it at five minutes. There's a lot to say, but um, uh, I'll go quickly. So yeah, I am simplifying the complicated is something that I strive for. Uh, the world is complicated and, you know, we have so much power on our phones and that, di that didn't happen overnight. Um, think about all we can do with them. And uh, one of the, the gaping holes in our uh, way, our digital life today is voting. Um, so when you look at today's voting, uh, you see uh, paper ballots, you see people waiting online, um, and you see a lot of uh, fraud and miscounting and uh, lack of transparency in elections. And it's been going on now for a long time. And I just think in the last six years, uh, it's been really there's been a bit brighter light shined on it. Um, and, and also when I think about Truva and I talk about Truva, I'm always thinking about it uh, globally. Um, this isn't unique to the United States. Uh, there are uh, corrupt elections everywhere. Uh, the United States is probably uh, less corrupt than others, um, but, but definitely voting is something that needs to be modernized and we haven't seen any, any real progress uh, in the last you know, hundred years of this. Um, and, and in other countries, it's still very, very analog. So uh, I've been a Bitcoiner since 2011. And uh, just I, I saw the technology. I saw Bitcoin as a, as a liberating force for good right away. I never saw it as an investment. I always saw Bitcoin for liberation from the tyranny that is fiat. So I've been a maximalist as long as I've since Bitcoin. So I was never tempted by uh the you know the, all that came after it unfortunately um i wish it was just bitcoin in the world and it said we spend 80 percent of our time fighting off ethereum and, and everything else so uh i started true vote because i thought why isn't voting digital and we need to make it this we it needs to be on our phones just like everything else is banking dating whatever else is on our phones why isn't voting on our phones i'm not trying to solve democracy I think we still have some big problems with democracy where uh, if you ask uh, two wolves and a chicken what's for dinner and the chicken vote and the wolves vote, uh, the chicken's going to be going to be dead just because he was 
he was the minority. So true vote isn't solving democracy, but it, it will solve voting. Um, and I looked at how can I design it in a way where it's uh, uncorruptible. And I thought about uh, using lightning. I thought about how do I decentralize this? Uh, I thought about, do I need to create another coin? Of course, the answer was no, but I considered it. Um, what a token, what, what, what can I do? And then Occam's razor kind of hit me. And I thought there's a way to do this on Bitcoin. And the way is by using open timestamps by Peter Todd, um, who is a Bitcoin core developer. And, uh, I write about this exactly how it works in the white paper, but basically, uh, I, I hope some, some people that aren't, I'll try and keep it. So it's not super technical, but the way it works is it is centralized, just like Twitter centralized, just like Swan is centralized. I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to tout decentralism when I'm not decentralized. So truevote.org is centralized, but I am hashing the data that is stored in TrueVote with a Merkle tree. And then I am matching that against the Bitcoin blockchain using open timestamps. So the benefit there is that I can show that the data hasn't been altered because if the data is altered, the, the hash wouldn't match with the Bitcoin blockchain anymore. So it's kind of a simple, elegant design that I'm pretty uh, satisfied with uh, where you're going to be able to see your ballot online with a ballot explorer, just like you can a Bitcoin transaction. You have your a Bitcoin explorer. A ballot explorer will let you see your ballot online. It's de-anonymized, so only you know that it's your ballot. Anyone can see it. So it's a URL. Anyone can see your ballot, but they don't know it's you. Only you, you have the key on your phone, uh, and there's a whole way uh, to back it up. It's uh, similar to password managers. Um, so you're, you, you know it's your ballot, but no one else does. Um, and if the data is changed, the, the, the Merkle tree will break. Uh, and so you know that your, your ballot hasn't been altered. And the other benefit of this is that we have real counting. So you know your ballot was counted. Today, when you submit a mail-in ballot or you go to a polling location, that's it. You, you, you mail your ballot off, you, you step into a voting booth. You don't know what happened to your ballot. You really don't. And I, I see that as a huge problem. Like there's no traceability. Uh, you might get an email from the LA County, Los Angeles County saying, Oh yeah, we received your mail-in ballot, but you don't know that they didn't throw it in the trash by accident or it fell on the floor. You really don't know. So uh, with true vote being all digital, you can see your ballot. You can see it's in the aggregate count. You can, you can, you, just like any proper website, you can see see aggregate data, and that just doesn't exist today in voting, and it certainly doesn't exist. Nothing like it exists in other countries. Um, I'm building it so it's multilingual right out of the gate, uh, multicultural right out of the gate. So the patterns that we're putting into the code are designed so it's not just centered around English. Um, I purposely even designed the logo to be purple and green. There's no blue and red here. I'm completely apolitical. Um, I'm doing it with best practices. I used to work at SpaceX and uh, I, I've learned a uh, strong discipline of proper coding practices, proper testing practices. Um, so I'm, built, I'm, I'm incorporating all of that knowledge uh, of my career into this venture. And I plan on, it's completely open source too. So. The other electronic voting systems today are closed source. They're kind of black boxes. They're a mystery. No one knows how they work. 
Um, I'm not trying to protect intellectual property, proper, uh, intellectual property here. I'm just giving this to the world and I'm going to build it just like Bitcoin is uh, open source and everyone can see it and scrutinize it and test it and try and break it. Same thing with TrueVote. So um, I'm actively building it now. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm just excited to start talking about it. I've been kind of quiet over the last year. Um, but I'm hoping to grow the company pretty fast and we're going to have a beta um, early next year. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'd be, I'd love to hear what people think and take some questions and um, you know, uh, see where we can go with it. So thanks Alex for having me. And um, yeah, I'm super excited about it. And, and I, and I do think, uh, you know, one day we'll all be voting via true vote um, and we won't have to, uh, you know, handle the Byzantine uh, system that we currently uh, are, are are suffering under. All right. So this is like, it seems like a gargantuan problem that you're attempting to solve. I think it, it needs to be addressed. I don't know if this is going to do it. Um, I would like to, good guy, I'm glad you came up. If you're in the audience and you are technically minded and you can kind of see maybe... Um, what might be wrong with a system like this? I'd like you to come up here because if it's okay with you, Brett, I want to have these guys ask you a series of questions to see if we can maybe see how bulletproof this thing is. Because the biggest problem, I think, with something like this is how do you establish trust, right? Like, how do we know that um, everything is trustable? The first question I have, and then I'm going to kind of let everybody go, is like, how do you... Like, how do you mean to turn this into a company? Like, how are you going to make money? How are you going to finance this thing? How are you going to run it? Are you going to actually make a profit? Do you, how would you do mm -hmm. that? All those, uh, like, what does the model look like to you? There's a lot of opportunity for revenue um, because the elections, both uh, local, state, national, they all have pretty large budgets that they wait and they waste a lot of it on uh, physical elections. What TrueVote is doing is we're taking voter rolls. So all these different disparate systems, we have to get that, that voter registration data into TrueVote and there will be a, a charge for that. So let's just say I live in Los, uh, Los Angeles County. So let's just say LA County uh, wants to use TrueVote for their next election. They will be providing us uh, the data to merge with TrueVote accounts, and at that, and when we do that, we will have a char we will have a charge for that. If they want customized reports, so if they want to see uh, how many how many males uh, how many males aged you know thirty voted for this person, um, we'll be able to provide custom reports. And so uh, all that there's a lot of potential for revenue. Um, I'm not super worried about it. There's always going to be a free version, but that will be part of our, our business is just integrating with election authorities and custom reports. Hope that answers you. Okay. Wicked. Go ahead. Um, yeah, this, I mean, this, this is, you know, uh, I think a huge problem and one definitely that needs a solution and needs to be looked into. Um, my question is regarding, um, you know, it sounds like this is, this is the solution maybe, to you know uh, some some having a more trustless system for voting but how do we deal with like uh, making sure that everyone's only voting once um would we have to use digital ids have we thought about 
this side of things? Yeah, certainly. That was something I thought of uh, right away. It's kind of like, um, uh, well, you're going to you're going to be signed into your account uh, just like you would any app, and that account has access to. It has to be authorized for each election. So once your voter registration data is 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 bound to your true vote identity, um, that's a one. That's just a one time. Uh, connection. And so true vote will know that you vo- if you voted or not, you know, if you vote, you hit submit, you're done. Um, if you, uh, and you won't be able to vote again. And so there's, there's only one-to-one matching between the true vote login and the voter registration login. So you have to, you have to register to vote just, and, and that's different in all over the, all over the world, how you register to vote. So that data still has to be incorporated with the true vote login. And once it is, then I, then we know uh, you've already voted or, or you need to vote and we'll just send notifications. Hey, the voting deadline is, you know, 9 PM tonight, make sure you vote tap here. Um, and you tap in and you fill out your ballot online. Right. So you say true vote identity. What, how do you know a person's like an authentic person and that they're actually uh legible to vote in a, in any particular, uh, election. Yeah. Again, it goes to the voter registration data. And so that's going to be bound by whatever data they like for LA County, you provide your driver's license and address. Um, so you, we match it with your true vote login. So you have to, you have to KYC on true vote. But we're we're not we're not using. I mean, we're not that your ballot data will never be revealed, so people can feel safe knowing that their who they voted for is is not um, uh, cannot be discovered. It's and I and I and I specify how in the white paper. It's it's de-anonymized. So um, you do have to KYC with TrueVote. You do have to prove that you know you are who you are, say you are, and then that has to match the voter registration database. How do we? How do we solve for corrupt voter registration databases? I can't solve that, unfortunately, and I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to provide a way to vote online. Corrupt voter databases, the 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 the, the maintainers of those will need to. So, um, um, and, I, and 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 you know, some of them do a pretty good job. I mean, I recently changed my address, and it immediately deactivated my prior voter registration. They knew, so. Um, yeah, uh, some of them are great. I think it could be argued that some of them are pretty freaking corrupt, but that's fine. I mean, I get it. That's not your mission. Yeah, I can't solve everything. That's 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 the thing. I know we can move on. Yeah. These, yeah, these questions are common. Like it's, I, I, that's why I kind of started off by saying, you know, I can't solve democracy either. Like there's always going to be a, uh, minority that feels marginalized in a democracy. That's unfortunate. I'm not trying to solve that. In fact, you know, there's there's arguments to, to to not vote at all, you know, and I understand them. Um, but as long as long as we have the United States and other countries that are that are democracies and we do we all, and they do vote, uh, I want to provide a digital version of doing that. That's what I'm trying to do. And um, you know, I think V1 will uh, take humanity a long way, and then I'll look at V2 at some point in the future. I don't have a roadmap past V1. Um, but maybe it's decentralized. Maybe it incorporates registration in some way. Um, 
I don't know. I'm just trying to build V1 right now. I understand. Okay. Uh, yeah. Good guy. Yeah. Just two quick comments or sorry, two quick questions and then a comment. Uh, first question, the, you said the private keys are being stored on the phone. Um, in what state are the private keys being stored? And I ask this because with the U.S.'s recent integration with the NSO group and the Pegasus malware um, and the no-click attack vectors that we're seeing on phones, how are the private keys being stored? Certainly, we've seen a lot of automated attack malware and, and, and tool sets steal cryptocurrency from people's phones. So how are we, are we protecting the private keys on something that's persistently connected to the internet? Hmm. Yeah, I haven't really dug into uh, the nefariousness of Pegasus and how, how deep that goes. Um, that could end up okay, being a problem. Ignore Pegasus, ignore yeah. Pegasus altogether. People yeah. are clicking on links all the time. So how do we protect users' private keys from malicious links, fake UPS links, emails, and, and of course, the no-click malware that exists today. Yeah. Are, I mean, they, um, are they held in, in full form on the phone? No, it's in secured storage. It's very similar to the way last... Are you familiar with LastPass, the password manager? Um, it's very similar to how they store your uh, keys. Um, I'm using the protected storage on the phone, and it's all um, obviously encrypted, and it can't be read... Um, outside, it can't be read unless you unlock the phone and um, provide your your PIN or your biometric. Um, uh, the the signing is it being done locally or is it being done on a server? It's done locally. Yeah, so that would be something to consider as far as the security surface, right? If it's being signed locally on the phone, then any of those viruses would have the ability to see that process. Okay, so that was my first question. That's good, something to think about. Um, second question. Um, phone theft and loss and things of this nature happen all the time. So if someone's phone is stolen, how do we decredentialize their private keys and establish a new voter ID for them? Right. Uh, it's same, same, uh, you know, I keep going back to LastPass because I uh, studied how they do it. Um, you basically can log on from another device and, um, you have your two-factor authentication, uh, which you will have to recover. Um, um, the problem with that then is it's being stored remotely on a server, right? Which is one of the things I don't like about LastPass. Yeah, it is. It has to be. Otherwise, uh, it's if you lose your phone or it gets uh, destroyed, you you lose your account. Um, so I'm I, I have thought about that. Uh, yeah. We are storing that on the server the way LastPass does, or at least peer-to-peer. -peer. So as long as you have N plus one devices and you don't lose all of them, um, uh, you should be able to recover your account. Kind of okay. like, uh, are you familiar with Authy? You know, the two-factor, like if, if you, as oh, long as you have yeah. one. We, we actually work in the space and we try to, we work with the OMG cables and other things to physically... Uh, penetrate devices with things like iPhone cables and USB cables, iMac cables, all sorts of stuff. And LastPass certainly has been an easy attack surface for us to attack via those those types of methods. So we're able to get the keychains, the password files, and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. so, so it's certainly something to look into as far as the, the way the encryption is being done and the way the private keys are being stored. Um, that is a yeah. Concerning. That's just, but that's just the one thing, right? All mobile devices have those same issues, right? 
Yeah, and and you know what, I I can see a situation. I can see someday uh, maybe storing the keys on a, a Trezor type of device uh, in the future. Yeah. Where, yeah, yeah, to get around that r- r- physical signing, Authy, Trezor, Ledger. Um, uh, you could probably integrate Google Authenticator and other devices inside of this for that signing process in a way that created a little more security. So it was a two-step signing process instead of a one-step. But I think that's mm-hmm. interesting. Um, my, my closing comment is actually from Randy, who I respect a lot in, in the space, uh, a developer. Um, his comment to me was GitHub version control. Each voting machine maintains its own repo, easily syncs to the central repo subtree. Nothing crazy. Um, essentially suggesting that there's a very streamlined way of approaching this too using the GitHub acts, the controls, right? Yeah, you know, I actually looked at GitHub and looked at Git as a way of providing of 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 making data immutable um, the way Git does. But but Git history can be rewritten, so I kind of uh, went away from that and decided to use Open Timestamps um, um, because it, it just seemed more elegant, more uh, just definitively immutable than Git because you can rewrite Git. You re- you can you can rewrite Git history, so that kind of ruled it out for me. Uh, when I well, looked at it. Well, thank you, Brett. I appreciate you uh, taking these questions. Certainly, I know they're not easy ones, but uh, I look forward to hearing from you again and talking more about the, the private key storage and, and the signing methods to see if there's any improvements made on that. But I appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks Thanks for coming up and asking some questions. Good guy. Let's zoom out a little bit. Uh, good guy just zoomed in at the electron microscope level, and I think most people are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. So let's kind of like uh, bring it out a little higher to um, more of the kind of the thematic issues that I think a lot of people have questions about in regards to how can something like this actually work. And did you have something you wanted to ask? I did, but uh, it, it was around security and also one of the questions that you asked, so I just came down. I am interested uh, on, you said that you have to set up a user account and there's the KYC aspect and all that. I mean, let's say that, you know, a breach does occur. I mean, and, and I know that you said, I, I mean, I could probably find this in the white paper, but the question that I was around was, what could I see? Like if I hacked in or something like that, you know, what am I going to see about these users? Like, how is that PII being handled, if you want to talk about that? And is my whole, like, voting history, my voting record, I, I thought I heard you say that it's not linked in the account, but could you go over that part, just kind of the privacy and the security on the uh, on, on your side of the fence? Yeah, it, it, well, it's, it's a zero-knowledge uh, design where the ballot data and the user that submits that submits each ballot is decoupled. So the only, the storage of that coupling is only in the user's account. And so true vote, and that's stored on device as part of the uh, secured storage that I spoke with about earlier. And I, 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 I lay exactly how this works out in the white paper, but basically we don't have, we don't have a way of on in the true votes data model that, that, that associates user accounts with their with their ballots. That is stored. That is stored on the client. Um, so there's no way we don't store that data. Now in transit, uh, there is there are packets flowing to us, um, but we don't we don't store we don't store that. Okay, this user submitted that ballot. That's not persisted. So it's just in an encrypted network and it's discarded once the, the transaction is finalized. Um, 
Um, and yeah, there, there is a level of trust there because I'm saying that, but uh, there's no way of me proving it other than TrueVotes code is open source. There will be uh, reproducible builds to show that the, co the code hasn't been altered. Um, and I'm building that again from the beginning so that it's very transparent what exactly we are doing with that data when it lands on our server. And so there's going to be a way where you can verify that the code on GitHub is the same code that is running on truva.org data center. And same with the app. And same with yeah. the app. The app will be the app will be reproducible, rebuildable. You don't have to download it from Google Play or Apple uh, Apple App Store. Um, you can build it yourself, and on Android, you can install it yourself. So um, that's important to me. Uh, I think Telegram does that. Signal does that. TrueVote's going to do that. Brett, you said uh, packets flowing. I assume you mean encrypted packets. Of course, yeah. Okay. Just yeah, you know, and, and nothing, and nothing other than HTTPS, the way that all, you know, all internet connect uh, encryption works. Um, okay. Nothing more That's than fine. that is needed. Yeah, I'll probably use pinned uh, certificates. I, again, super technical, but that way it could prevent man-in-the-middle attacks where uh, a, mal a, a malicious actor intercepted those packets and. Uh, tried to log them or store them. Um, so we'll use PIN certificates so there's no way of uh, man-in-the-middle attacks. And another thing that came to me, if you're signing the devices, or the keys locally, if someone receives a malicious link, um, a text message, an email, uh, and then they engage with that link via their QR code, and then the phone does that essentially locally, would that give the ability for remote actors to to farm keys in a sense. So you're saying if the phone is compromised and a remote actor can control it, like yeah, Pegasus? No, just text messages, emails, or like here's your link for the voting via the true ID. Here's your here's your text message link to your true ID vote, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because that private key would then be unencrypted when it was signing that malicious link, potentially that could be <laughs> that could reveal it, right? That malicious link would have to have access to the secure storage that only the TrueVote app has access to. So uh, I don't know. I don't think it would be able to get to that. Um, or they would have to get a bunch of salts, right? Yeah. If they were to collect a bunch of hashes, they might be able to start to. Uh... But yeah, no, I think. Okay. Thank you, Brent. Yeah. Peter. So in some districts, um, you know, currently with the current system, their revotes are and recounts are triggered when when the vote counts are at a certain level when the, when there's just a differential of of a certain number of votes, and I'm guessing that you know you're hoping that this system gets rid of the need for those kinds of things, but people being people, they're even though it's a trustable system, they're not going to trust it. Have you thought about scenarios where um, your system might have to uh, encounter and deal with these kinds of things? Yeah, that kind of goes uh, to a question uh, of will TrueVote completely replace elections? I, I can see uh, a situation where uh, county or voting voter uh, elections are hybrids where 
you can vote on TrueVote or you can vote in person or via mail. And then the, you count all of them together and that's your vote count. Um, and in a situation like that, uh, I mean, I guess I could see where uh, election authority would say, okay, everyone needs to re-vote again on this date via TrueVote, via mail-in or, or however you voted, do it again. Um, I, but but no, I mean the, 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 that's the that's the benefit of this is that the vote count is accurate to the vote. So whether it's uh, you know ten thousand people voting or ten million people voting, the number should be exactly correct because it's digital. There's no human error as far as counting goes. Um, so I think you know people people are going to have to get used to voting with true vote. But you know as time goes by and as more and more elections are proven to be successful. Um, it's going to just proliferate throughout every state and, and nation and worldwide eventually. So um, there won't be a need for uh, any sort of kind of a doubt in the voter counts because it's going to be proven that right. it's accurate. So, and so we're clear about that. So people understand what we're talking about here. You're saying that the reason we're going to know that Okay, so something you said that might confuse people is that because it's digital, like we know what it is. Well, you know, it, most people who think that there's corruption in the system are looking at these black boxes where you can't see the code. They have no idea what's going on in there. And they're saying, oh, just trust us. It's digital, so we know what it is. You basically said the same thing. So we need to, we need to wrap that into, well, how do we know it is what it is? And that has to do with open source, right? Exactly. Exactly. Because it's open source and, and anyone can run that the same code that counts the votes, they can, they, there's the data will be available via an API and anyone can run the same counting code against that data. So yeah, it's all open source. And again, you, you'll be able to verify that the code running on the server is the same that's in GitHub. Okay, so which it, which a lot of companies don't do. They claim things are open source, but you don't really know. Uh, you don't really know if you're running the same version that is on GitHub. You don't know, and so that's a big part of our, the design is that you will know um, with TrueVote. It has to be that way. I want it, it to be completely to be transparent. I agree, hundred mm -hmm. percent. Otherwise, nobody's going to trust it. It's just going to be one yep. more freaking black box that can exactly. be uh, co-opted or corrupted by somebody. Okay. Um, can you help us understand, like, this is utilizing Bitcoin's blockchain, if I'm understanding correctly, right? Right. So when you submit okay, a ballot, let me ask a second part of this question, because this is where, this is where it, 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 it's not super clear, at least to me is that if you add a block every 10 minutes, you can only have so many transactions included. How the hell do we arrive at millions of votes, if that's what it is, like a U.S. presidential election, for example? Yeah, it's super elegant. Uh, basically, every time, you, every time a ballot is submitted, it's hashed, and then uh, a process runs in the background that's taking all those hashes and building another hash called a Merkle root. And that Merkle root is periodically hashed against the Bitcoin blockchain using Peter Todd's open timestamps. Okay, Brett, I'm going to ask you to try to use analogies and words that, that human beings who don't know what hash means understands. 
But can you break that down into a way for normal people to understand? Right. Okay. I'll spell out an example. So let's just keep it simple and we'll do the presidential election. And let's say it's between John Doe and Jane Smith. So you submit your vote for John Doe. Uh, there's a date, the time you submitted the date, the date time stamp you submitted. So let's say it's 3 PM on election day and you voted for, for, uh, Jane, uh, John Doe. So that's a vote for him. And that, Data, it's basically a date and the number and, and a checkbox for you voting for that person. It is then hashed, and that's using a software algorithm called SHA-256, same as Bitcoin. And it creates this string of characters that's typically, um, you know, 12 to 36 characters. And it's this representation of that data that's hashed, and it's one way so the only way to regenerate that hash is to take the exact same data and hash it again. You cannot de, you cannot create the data from the hash. You can only create the hash from the data. Okay, here's Trying a mental keep, ch- mental challenge for you, Brett. Are you able to explain what this means without using the word hash? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is a great exercise. Um, well. It ensures that the data cannot be altered because there's there is only one way. So you you take data, whether it's a ballot or anything, you encrypt it, and the output the result of that is a representation of that data, and it's a string of characters. That string of characters is then uh, matched against the Bitcoin blockchain where at that moment in time where Bitcoin keeps moving along, block after block gets added to the Bitcoin blockchain, it's, it's matched against the current state of the Bitcoin blockchain. And so there's no way to uh, regenerate that data without, if you alter the data in any way, it will break that encryption and it will show this data has been altered. Okay, um, so how do you stuff 10 million votes per hour into into this no problem you basically when you take all that data and you uh create an encrypted string out of it it can be uh it can be you know one record or 10 million records and it all kind of distills down to one uh very long string and the only way to generate that string a second time is if the data has not been changed so in other words what you're telling me is is if there were 10 million votes per hour and let's say there's six blocks per hour every 10 minutes. Let's you say get a million votes per block, just to make it simple. All right, whatever. But the point the point is, is that you're saying we can stuff all this into, um, because of the way you're encrypting it, we can stuff all this and prove it into these blocks without worrying about transactional volume capacity or block time. Correct. In fact, the more data, the better. It just makes that it makes that uh, encrypted string that much harder to uh, to change. Most importantly, yeah. most importantly, provable. Like we can reverse engineer this, and anybody can look at it to say, okay, well, this is accurate and it's true, and nobody's tampering with this. Yeah, yeah. If one ballot is changed, the it, it, will, it will break. That's the that's the beauty of it. Define it's, break. What does that mean? If one uh, ballot the, is changed, it'll break. Without using the word hash, uh, the encrypted string will be different. 
if if any data is changed, the encrypted string will be different. So and it will show is if some jerk off who's got access to one of these black boxes who's in another country can send some command and saying change the vote to this much because we need to wait, we need to put our thumb on the scale and tip it this direction. <laughs> what you're saying is that won't work. It won't work. Mathematically, okay. it won't be correct anymore, right? It it'll reject the sum essentially. Right. Yep. That's the beauty of it. It's it, it it prevents true vote or anybody from putting their thumb on the scale and changing the the, the vote because right. if you change it that, that that will break it will break and it will it will be obvious to everybody. All right, let's go with Tomer, Wicked, and then Good Guy. Tomer, what do you got? Yeah, I guess for me, I just uh, the part that I don't understand is how we know that the votes are accurate in the first place. Like you. How do, how do you know that everybody only voted once, nobody voted twice, or that, um, or how, or that someone did vote versus didn't vote? Like how how is that ma- managed in any way? Because it seems to me that the vulnerability is still if I if I can give myself a hundred votes and I'll just vote a hundred times, and there's no way that you can prevent that from taking place. Well. It's we we just when you when you go to vote it will say you already voted um, and even if you sign in from another device it will how do I explain this simply um, that actually makes keep, sense I think what I think what Tomer is really saying is how do you know that those voter registration rolls are correct because if if I were to stuff the, those rolls I could cheat. But I can see how you can only get one vote. That's pretty simple. But like yeah. you could create in you know, put to put it into Twitter terms, you could create a million bots on those voter registration rolls and then those would all get a vote. You see what I'm saying? So it would have to be in tandem with a way to verify that the reg- voter registration rolls were actually accurate. Otherwise you got a problem. Yeah, one step right. at a time. Yeah, I mean, LA. Like I said, I'm I'm pretty familiar with LA County. Just have living here for over 20 years. Um, when you go to register in LA County, it, you, you do it once, and if you do it again, it just invalidates the prior registration. That the, their system is sophisticated enough to do that. Um, like I said, I can't solve that type of yeah. abuse. If someone were to create a bot and like change the spelling of someone's name or change the address to make it different, and then LA County accepts it, and then you have two ballots. Uh, that's mailed to your house today. Like that's a problem. Well, I mean, there's, been- there's all the, there's all the questionable, you know, activities, you know, where you've got some, some counties and some districts or whatever, where, you know, they find all these names of people that theoretically move to the state, but it's like the address is on a cul-de-sac in a development with no homes on it. You know what I mean? It's like you look at it mm-hmm. from an aerial photograph. There's no homes in this development, but they've plotted it all out and they have addresses, right? And all these theoretically like 3,000 fucking people live in this one address that doesn't even have a house. So, you know, you, you see what I'm saying? The, There's Then you look at the, the Google Maps timestamp and you realize it's a picture from 2006 and you've just <laughs> psyoped. No, but I mean, okay, uh, I don't really want to talk too much about this. One thing I will say is that this voter fraud thing, uh, it seems to me to be a psyop because both sides always complain about it when when the other side is in power. It seems like they're always trying to psyop us into thinking that there's voter fraud. And maybe there is, but like the fact that 
whatever the minority is always complains about it, just kind of to me raises some red flags. Like, why is it always a, a complaint from everybody who is in the minority? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like just fucking out. I don't know. Well, okay, anyways, I think the okay, idea so is question, that you want you want fairness. You want to believe course, that course, that your vote you, actually counts, right? That's what he's trying to solve for. Everybody, but literally everybody in the minority complains about voter fraud as if like. And I mean, maybe there but is that doesn't about the fact that doesn't change anything, Wicked. You maybe you're right, but that doesn't. I don't see how that contributes to this conversation. It doesn't. That was just a side note that I just wanted to get there. Okay, the the question I had is, um, can we talk a little bit about how exactly the information is, uh, uh kind of put onto Bitcoin's uh, blockchain? Like, does it does it get added one time per block? Um, or you know what's what's the system there? Great question. Um, the the really nice thing about Peter Todd's open timestamps is you don't actually push data on the Bitcoin blockchain. So there's no uh, transaction that I need to create or fee I have to pay. There's it's free. You're basically uh, taking the current state of the Bitcoin blockchain, whatever so whatever time it is, and you're storing the. Uh, you're hashing again. Sorry to use the word, but you're taking the, you're you're taking the true vote data and hashing it against the Bitcoin blockchain at that moment, and then you're storing that hash in your system, and then you can back into that by just running running it again and verifying yes, that was the hash at that time, and that's all public. Like there's open timestamp servers that are out there on the internet that can show, yeah, this was the hash at this moment in time in Bitcoin. And yes, that hash matches the true vote hash um, at that moment. So yeah, that, that's what's so elegant about it. That's why I, you know, I, I had a moment where I was writing the white paper where I realized this is the most elegant and simple solution is just use the Bitcoin blockchain, but you don't even need to post data on it, which is great. Because I previously designed, I thought about, um, you know, using the opportun but th that was a limited amount of data you could push on there. So I, open timestamps really solved this, solved this, this issue, this exact issue. Um, yeah. So super happy about how that works. It's really, really quite brilliant in, in its sim simplicity. All right. Good guy. What are you thinking? Yeah. So uh, great topics, great conversation. Uh, question this time is in relation to accessibility and access. Uh, as someone who was, in the hospital essentially for three years after a motorcycle accident, I've come to realize that a lot of that stuff is very important. And so certainly 97% of Americans have uh, cell phones, but only 85% of those would be what we call smartphones. So for people who don't have smartphones, how do they get access to the service? Uh, and then people who have accessibility issues. Uh, so people who are physically unable to use the phone or require on additional support and help, What's the process we have for that when care workers and other individuals are involved? Yeah, we'll work with the election authorities where they can provide a smart device for them to come into or, or get presented with. So for people that don't have one in their pocket, uh, there's options where they can go to a polling place or someone could bring, bring a device to them and they can sign in there. So, um, yeah, I've, I've thought of that. And, you know, and again, I think a, a lot of a lot of the initial elections will be hybrids where people vote the way they have traditionally and they'll be able to vote with true vote. So they could just vote the way that they always have, which is, um, you know, mail in ballot or if they can make it to a polling place. 
is there going to be a second key that gets signed when people are using it for accessibility? So there's some kind of um, authorization or accountability for who helped fill out those ballots, essentially. Um, I'm thinking maybe you take that agent's key and sign it with that user's key. So you have a, 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 an example, a branch of that Merkle tree that contains that particular person's assistance. Just a thought, though. Yeah, yeah, I can see us adding like a proxy login for someone to show that, okay, this person is assisting. And I think uh, when you look at LA County, again, their mail-in ballots have something similar where uh, a person can attest that they helped the voter uh, fill out the ballot. So we'll, we'll just do a digital version of that. Very cool. Very cool. Accessibility is sexy and rad, and it's very important. So thank you, Brett. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Um, wow. I mean, what a gargantuan, like Herculean kind of challenge you're trying to tackle. So I, I do wish you the best, Brad. Like, I, I hope you're successful at this. I hope you get plenty of support. I hope you get plenty of donations. Um, I hope you make money with this thing. And I hope it works. It's definitely needed, in my opinion. I think we need this. Uh, we have a couple of minutes left. I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions. If you're in the audience, you'd like to come up and ask a question, raise your hand. We'll bring you up. You can ask the question. You can ask the question also in the telegram group. That's t.me forward slash cafe Bitcoin club t.me forward slash cafe Bitcoin club. Um, and then before we wrap, Brett, we'll give you a couple of moments to make some closing comments and, uh, then we'll wrap up. Lono. Good morning. morning i just it's always interesting when uh we go into government areas with this technology i.e voting um i i wonder you know like um when you're looking at something like this you're you're, you're you know you're obviously probably looking at the ccpa that would be your guys's biggest privacy act and how you'd have to behave with your data so in essence you're telling me just through the way that you're going to use your algorithms, hashing them, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be a single hash onto the chain. At every point, there is a packet communication where there could be a moment of interception. But once you have it, it's hashed in there. But is there a chance, I'm just saying, if someone was malicious, knew this stuff, for a man in the middle, grabbing your guys' packets in between machine and voter or stuff like that? Yeah, I'm... I Man in the middle attacks are super uh, sophisticated, and I, I, the the best defense against them, as I said earlier, is pinned uh, secure certificates, where that does a pretty good job uh, of of mitigating that type of attack vector. Um, yeah, I, I just think it would be extremely hard to know exactly uh, to intercept those packets and change them. Um, mid-flight. And once the ballot is submitted, uh, you can access that ballot from any network connection. So let's just say you were to move, let's say you submitted your ballot at home and then you were to move outside your house and be on the mobile network and check your ballot. Um, if it was not what you submitted, um, you could submit a request to uh, invalidate your ballot and resubmit it if there was a problem. I mean, there needs to be some sort of customer service flow for uh, when a ballot doesn't match what the voter thinks it should thinks it should be. Um, I'm hoping to avoid that by using pin certificates, but I can see uh, 
we're going to have to build a way where if somebody says, hey, I voted for this person, but my ballot shows it's, it was different, um, they'll be able to we'll have somebody take a look and we'll just have to knock those issues out as we, as they, as we see them. Cool, because that would open up then, if you can do that, then again, there's a way to audit the system after. If I have a chance to change it after vote and recognize it and not just accept it, you see how then there's another second you know, surface area that's not really visible that we look in in the ability to either check my vote, recheck my vote. Well, if I can do it, someone else can do it too. And I just always make that assumption. Well, you would always have to be digital signatures, no different than sending a Bitcoin transaction, right? You'd need exactly. signatures. We're getting really complicated. And again, and then it gets back to what good guy biker was talking about, like storage of keys. How do we do that? So I know how it's done at like, you know, a multi-billion dollar airline when we're dealing with those things in the background and our key managements and stuff. I just wonder if right now with the technology people have in hands, without the secure elements, with this ability to recast the vote, I kind of like if it's audited on the front end, like your open source code, everybody's happy with it. We know this. Then, you you know, that would lead to no doubt of the machine and you could destroy the information the second it's done. And it needs to go into a black pit void because what about political retribution? Like one mistake and those things get out and there's some heuristics that match. You understand the danger that people could be in. And it's almost like if there's an ability then to recast, recheck my ballot, like when I go vote, it's in there and it's done. I can't go physically go look at my vote again or stuff like that. Um, that gets into remorse. What if someone mm. changes their mind after the fact and they're saying, well, I didn't vote that way. Like that challenge, I guess the challenge aspect, I'm curious on how you'd resolve that. That would be, I know you probably don't have it yet, but that'd be a very interesting uh, process, a remediation process I'd be interested in. Yeah, I think, you know, I think most, election, most election authorities are just going to flat out say, once you submit your ballot, um, it needs to, that, that's it. So, um, you know, all, all this too has to go through regulatory where the, the secretaries of state need to be okay with it and the way it all works. And so there's a lot of work that has to be done beyond uh, writing software, just the rules that each election authority has uh, complying with those and satisfying their uh, curiosity, you know, because it's going to be, it's so new, you know, it's kind of like Bitcoin, like pe just people don't understand it right away. So there are going to be a lot of questions. Well, what if this, what if that? Um, but we have to start on it. Um, Lono, could you do a ghost we, system where you Lono, I know you, Lono, I know you want to ask a billion follow-ups. We got to, we got to end though. And we've got Peter left to go. So, um, let's, let's go fast. Peter, you got 30 seconds and then we're going to let Brett, Brett make closing com comments and then we'll wrap. So I'm not the smartest guy on the stage here, but, uh, it appears to me that op return or the use of op return is something that hasn't really been uh, utilized much. Um, and I'm curious to know, you know, typically when someone comes out with a use case for something that increases the, um, the use, other use cases are then found. And so I'm curious to know if you've thought about, you know, what happens if in the future there's much more use of this because other people are starting to do this and does it clog up the system, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. I said earlier, we're not using up return. We're just, we, we don't need to post anything on the Bitcoin blockchain. So that's, that's how we solve that. I, I, you're, you're right. And that, but, the, and there are limits with up return. We're not using it. 
Um, it's not needed in our design. We're just hashing it against the current state of the Bitcoin blockchain using open timestamps. So no use of OpReturn at all. Hey, Brett, uh, before we close, Randy reached out to you. He's actually been developing and coding solutions publicly for all sorts of problems related to this issue. I would strongly encourage you to reach out to Randy. I think he DM'd you. So that's just a some some that guy's got a lot of alpha in relation to this. And he's already committed a ton of open source solutions to your problems we talked about today on GitHub. So check him out. Okay. Thanks. All right. This has been a great discussion. Appreciate you coming on, Brett. Appreciate you subjecting yourself to a lot of very difficult questions that you maybe didn't anticipate. I think that's positive though. I think you know. Thinking through all these things is super important, especially when it comes to something as important as as elections. Um, like Lana brought up, I mean, there's considerations. There's privacy considerations. There's all kinds of considerations. There's trust considerations. How do the people trust this stuff? All those kind of things. And a uh, huge, huge project. So I admire you for, for undertaking it. <laughs> Better you than me. Damn, it's going to, I hope it works out for you. I appreciate you coming on the show today, man. Do you want to make any closing comments? Thanks so much for those uh, remarks. And thanks again for having me. Yeah. My closing comment is just to, I don't know what you just said. I, we realize how complicated and how big of a task this is. The good news is that voting itself is not super complicated. It's kind of like filling out a survey. Um, you, you have a list of choices, you pick your choice, you hit submit and you're done. So that aspect of it is simple. And like I say in my Twitter bio, simplifying the complicated. So taking, uh, making, vote, making elections uh, immutable and having election integrity is a complicated problem. But TrueVote is going to distill it down into the simplicity of it all, which is really just log in, time to vote, pick your choices, hit submit, you're done. Democracy at work. So that is the goal to make it that simple where because today it is just so, so complicated to vote. It's so tedious. I can't believe that people wait online for hours. Every time I see lines, I think, God, that is just such a waste of time. Um, I value my time. We're only, you know, our time is valuable. It's our most precious resource. And the whole idea behind all this digital innovation that we've seen over the last, you know, 100 years or the last 30 or so years with the internet is to save people time so they can use it for other things. And that's why we do need a digital voting system. There's basically two, two, two reasons why I'm doing it. One, to save everyone time and two, to have election integrity. So the true vote solves both those issues that have not been solved yet. Um, and so that is why I'm so passionate about it. And I like I like challenging problems. So, uh, Personally, I don't need the money. If Truro becomes a multi-billion dollar company, great. Um, but it doesn't matter to me. I'm doing it because it needs to get built. And uh, I have started uh, quite a few startups in my career, um, including an e-commerce uh, company that was super successful and set me for life. So I'm doing this for the love of uh, humanity. And I know that sounds kind of uh, soapboxy, but it's, it's really true. And my intentions are totally altruistic. I want to build a voting system because the world needs it. And I love Bitcoin and I see uh, Bitcoin as the future. And I would just wish the rest of the world would wake up to it because it's super frustrating. I think for all of us that are listening in this space about how people, just, some people just don't get Bitcoin and they conflate it with crypto. Um, 
as much as I love Bitcoin, uh, I, I, I want to take all that passion and energy and put, pour it into this. And that's what I'm doing. And I also am a big believer in open source. And it frustrates me that there's so many, so much software we use in our devices is not open source. And I'm always curious to why, like, why, why aren't more apps on our phone open source? Be transparent. There should, they shouldn't be black boxes. I want more open source. So I'm trying to set a good example with TrueVote, and I'm going to. And I, I hope I hope other projects uh, follow suit and and open source their software. Um, and that's truly the way to a prosperous society: is if there are no lies, there are no uh, secrets. They're just kind of um, free flow of information and uh, more trust uh, for each other. So um, I can't solve democracy and marginalize minorities. Unfortunately, I wish I could, but I think this is a huge step where at least people will be able to trust their uh, elections and they won't have doubt of, Oh, was there corruption um, or not? They won't. Truvo does solve that. So uh, I'm looking ahead and I see a future where, I mean, if I, if we really make a lot of progress, maybe the 2028 presidential presidential election, we're ready for that. Um, and I also look outside the U.S., like I said earlier, there's a lot of opportunity with emerging democracies that also have uh, problems with uh, their citizens being uh, mistrusting of their election process. So I want to offer Truvo to the whole world, and it's built, being built multilingual uh, right at the beginning. And, you know, there's a lot of examples of American companies that have built software that takes off in other countries uh, uh, before it does in the U.S. And who knows, Truvo may, because um, some ambitious leader at some other country sees the potential and wants to use it. Um, so I'm super bullish on Truvo. Uh, as you can tell, uh, I, it needs to get done. And, you know, that's, what, that's going to be the rest of my life's work. Um, I love it. So Fantastic. Um, let's definitely get you back. I think we should get you back from time to time just to check in on your progress, see what kind of challenges you're running into, maybe clarify for people who have more questions. I'm fascinated by this topic, so would love to have you back some other time. Do appreciate you being here, Brett. Thanks again so much for having me. Appreciate it. All right, that's a wrap. You have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news. Preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. It's a great place to learn about Bitcoin. We do it live on Twitter Spaces every single day. If you can't catch the live show on Twitter Spaces, it is a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. You can throw me or Swan a follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of the show, my crew, and Shane, Sats for Life, and producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Danzig. Work with Swan Bitcoin. Shoot me a DM if you want to know more. Thanks again to the speakers. Brett for coming here, all the speakers, good guy, wicked, and our regular crew, Peter, Lono, throw these guys a follow. Um, I appreciate all the speakers that come on here on the regular, admire what you do, teaching people about this bright orange future. This is what I call getting on the mission. Let's go. Get on the mission. You don't know what it means. Hang out. You'll figure it out. I love all you guys. Everybody out there have a great day today. Crush it.